Hi, I'm Claire Edwards and I'm the percussionist and artistic director of Sydney's new music group, Ensemble Offspring. The Offcast is a new podcast from Ensemble Offspring where I'll be chatting to the musical mavericks, the pioneers, the ones who were often perceived as the outcasts in the world of classical music as they grew and blossomed, but as professionals, it is these people who are the innovators and the ones who are creating much-needed change and diversity for our musical landscape. So now I would like to welcome my guest today, Jane Sheldon. I was going to describe you, Jane, as a soprano, but of course you're much more than that. And um, <laughs> and we'll get to that in our conversation. But I did just want to mention that many people might know you, Jane, um, from many years ago because of your beautiful Wild Swans recording. <laughs> it's like a, um, it's like being preserved under museum glass because it's so old but it's I know how there. old were you when you recorded that I think I was 22 maybe and mm-hmm. I'm 39 now so that's like a really long time yeah well it comes up on the radio often enough and every time I hear it I know that it's you and it's that recording I don't know if anyone else has ever recorded that piece before lots of people have performed it but yeah I have no idea Yeah. Anyway, so that's the Elena Katz-Chernan magic of time that that goes on forever. But I'm talking to Jane today more, I guess, about your recent um, moves into composition and and why and what that means for you as as a musician and an artist creating in 2021. And also... um, where you see that going for you. I'm really interested to know, like, what's next for Jane. But first let's start, I guess, with um, why was it that as a, as a soprano who had obviously really moved quite um, clearly and, 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 um, and with a lot of intention into contemporary music and to doing, I guess, more extended techniques with your voice and and not just doing the regular repertoire. Um, what was the sort of moment where you went, actually, I think I want to start having a go at writing some of this stuff and, and what was the impetus for that? Yeah, it's funny because um, I, I don't, I think this is changing, but at least at the time that I was, you know, a, a very young musician, <clears throat> sort of in late teenagehood or in my early 20s thinking, oh, yeah, okay, this this kind of is my life now. I, I am a musician and this is the path that I'm on. Um, you know, I was training as a singer and performing as a singer and at that time at least classical training was very siloed um, in that, you really didn't have multiple specialties and and particularly the barrier between performers and composers was pretty solid. Mm. Um, So it just didn't occur to me actually to compose for a really long time, even though I did have sort of plenty of compositional ideas just floating about in my head. um, I just didn't act on any of them for ages. And And then this weird thing started happening which sounds kind of bad, but anyway, 
where I, because I was commissioning quite a lot of music, I suppose, or a bit, and um, every now and then I would get someone's work back and they'd done something, you know, I was commissioning people whose work, whose music I knew and who would always deliver really well-crafted stuff. But um, every now and then I would get something back and I would think, no, 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 this isn't the piece. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and and I had to really, that prompted a lot of reflection, like why am I thinking this? Um, from what position am I thinking this and what can I do about it? Because it wasn't that yeah. the piece was bad, it's just that it was different from what I had um, conceived yeah, of in my head. Yeah, and, yeah. And I yeah. realised it, and I realised that um, to really pay proper, um, to really see the fullness of what that response was, I realised it wasn't just that it was that these pieces weren't matching up to something I'd envisaged, but they weren't matching up to something I desired. Like I wanted the piece to exist in a particular way, mm-hmm. and. Um, and, you know, like it's totally, it would have been completely incoherent to go to the composer and be like, no, no, this isn't it. Yeah. Um, and so the the proper response I felt to that feeling was like, okay, I should have a shot at writing this myself. And, like, I feel like you and I have talked a bit about this when, um, you know, at times when I've asked you about percussion um, techniques or, you know, the best way to realise something, you have occasionally said, like, you know, because the, the amount of information that we hold as performers about our instrument yeah. is, like, it's so full. And sometimes when I've asked you for that advice, you've just said sort of off the, just like out of nowhere, like, see, I should compose. You're like, I know all this stuff. I should <laughs> So that kind of, you know, it was that feeling. Yeah, that's exact. yeah, that's exactly true. I mean, I don't think I have that creative impetus quite enough somehow like I feel like I, I my creativity comes out in different ways to actually compose but um mm. I mean of course I have composed bits and pieces but mm. I find it really hard as well to articulate to composers in a very clear way the kind of do's and don'ts of why something works and why something doesn't which was the interesting thing for me to write that um marimba composition kit because I really had to get very clear on what it is that works and why and and I hope people take the time to try and understand it because it is quite in depth which is why it is so hard to explain but I can imagine it's even more um detailed and specific for one's voice because of course your voice isn't the same as another soprano's voice and the things that you might be interested in delving into with your voice isn't what other people would either so it makes sense for you to and, and in my experience of your early composing anyway, you did use your voice a lot in, in the composing. Is that something that is because you know your voice so well and you know what you want to sing and what you want to do? Yeah, well, what was really, I think what was really salient to me when I was starting, I mean, firstly, I, I kind of, it felt natural to kind of um, involve voice. Uh, but also the thing that was really clear when I was studying was just um, the the difference, the sort of gulf um, between the amount of knowledge I have about what a, what good composing for voice looks like and the far smaller amount of knowledge I have about what good composing for other instruments looks like. Mm. I mean, 
I sort of, I have, you know, strong aesthetic preferences and everything, but even just the sheer ergonomics of like writing for, for a string instrument, you know, that, that's a lot of uh, information that I really didn't have at the beginning. So, you know, partly it felt natural to include voice, partly um, the compositions were stronger when I did. Mm. Um, and and the process of kind of um, learning properly how to compose um, has partly been about just trying to do all the catch-up on all the other instruments yeah, that I might. Yeah, totally. And would you say, I was going to ask you what, what your proudest work is that you've written so far, but instead I'm going to say, was the piece that you wrote for Ensemble Lost Spring in 2017 for Seven Stories, was that one of the first pieces that you sort of notated or had you been composing before then? It was very early. Yeah. I had written a choir piece, um, which was just the, the first thing I did when I I'd sort of started writing like weird, weird little songs kind of and then once I thought, okay, I'm going to give this a go. I'm going to actually make myself see out an idea, complete a piece, you know, make it, like make myself show it to people. The thing that I did was I looked up like weird little composing competitions mm-hmm. because I thought, oh, if I enter one, then I'll have to really do it. So I wrote a, a, a quite simple choir piece for one of those. And then and then I won it, which was very oh, encouraging wow. and sort of affirming. And that that, I think... I think that was actually m- might have been important in me, like sticking with it. But yeah. anyway, I'd written that. That was like seven minutes long, something. And I'd written this piece for Australia Piano Quartet, which um, was really good to write, but really hard because I just um, knew so little, mm. really. Uh, and it kind of worked. <laughs> And then the next thing that I wrote was a piece for you guys um, and that was definitely on a scale that I'd not done before, mm. both the number of lines and... Because the thing that I, I mean, you know, obviously I've been quite close to your development as a composer in the last four four years or whatever, five years, um, mm. but what I find so amazing about your approach to the whole undertaking is... I don't know, it reminds me of, I was on a panel recently for the British and Australian Orchestras League or something, and it, uh, this guy, Adam Zabo, who's actually an Australian cellist who who manages the Manchester Collective, he was on the panel with me, and it was about how orchestras can kind of, um, you know, work into the future and be more relevant and all those kind of discussions. So we were talking about, you know, how to, how they need to market better and no, no, no. And he said, do you know what I think? I think that audiences just need to expect more just really pretty good music, like not expect every time a freaking masterpiece <laughs> that comes out of the composer. He's like, when would that have ever happened before? It's just that it's the masterpieces that stand the test of time. So that's what they're sort of used to and expecting and hoping for. And he said, just be happy that it's a pretty bloody good piece of music. And then everyone's expectations will just be totally different. And I feel like with you, you're so sh- sure of yourself, I guess, coming at it, um, not sure in a, in a, I'm up myself sort of way, but like, you don't, you, it's like you don't have anything to lose. And so, um, this sense of 
every piece is part of a learning curve and not kind of like precious about, oh, well, that's not the greatest piece that I ever wanted to compose because, of course, it's not going to be until you reach a certain level of, yeah, understanding of every single instrument that you're writing for and how to articulate it. And so you need to write those slightly shit, sometimes crap sections of pieces to get to the place that you want to go right. And I guess that's why doing a doctorate and and studying as you are now is also a really part of the important part of the process for how how do you kind of get to that place. And I think there's this big um, it's not a great situation in Australia at least at the moment where especially with the the First Nations composers who are just coming onto the scene and there's this expectation that they just suddenly know how to do it. Yeah. And and who who does really? I mean really yeah. who does? If you've never learned orchestration then you you can't possibly suddenly know how to do it. No. And god okay I have so many thoughts about all that. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing I'll just say like about my own kind of path through that um and my own sort of attitude to like you know like quote unquote composing a masterpiece like I kind of don't even know what that means I mean I think for me it is definitely the case that I I quite I feel very free to just kind of try things out as you said and I think there are two reasons for that one is that yeah I kind of don't have anything to lose because um well another way to put it actually is just that I have this really amazing resource which is um (laughs) to my knowledge I have the respect of my peers in this other domain and that domain is uh solid like you know that's like that kind of um being a singer of a certain level of experience and status or whatever, um, <clears throat> that's just there. And and the composing is is another project that connects. But um, I feel for some reason that context makes me feel pretty free to experiment. But also the thing is because I, I have been sort of singing professionally since I was about 12 I feel like all the musical learning I have ever done has been in public like Mm. I I never I didn't do a bachelor's in music um I you know I just I've never tried things out um like privately first (laughs) so it's always felt uh I don't know. It's not that it's that it's not that it's comfortable because I I feel there is a dimension on which like there's risk involved, but um, I just kind of think like oh it's part of the deal and yeah that's interesting what Adam said. Um, sometimes I think of of performing new music, you know, living music by living people. Um, I've sometimes tried to explain it to people like, look, the things that we now recognise as masterpieces from the past, whatever that means, let's just say the stuff that still gets performed, mm-hmm. um, that all went through this like cultural washing machine at the time it was written mm. um, and 
people devoted themselves to um, getting in there with the works being composed at that time and, and we're left with this like strange, these strange cultural artefacts for whatever mm. reason. But um, I'm just kind of like I'm in the washing machine of now. <laughs> and we're, like, That's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> and it's certainly vastly more interesting to me than just performing a bunch of old old stuff that especially stuff that you know heaps of other people are performing like no one needs me to do it yeah um, but yeah the, and then the, to address the other thing you said just about the perversity of um having this expectation that that people can just come to composition um and somehow just like wrangle with an orchestra and the expectation that anything good will come out of that is pretty interesting. And mm. like I just, in the doctoral program I'm in, um, I'm doing a, a composing doctorate with Lisa Lim through the Composing Women program at the University of Sydney. And as part of that, one of the great luxuries of that was um, this past year writing a piece for a workshop with Tasmanian Symphony. And mm. on the one hand, that was like, wow, this is amazing to have an orchestra give me their time for this, this um, you know, I can try stuff out, da, 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 da. But also an orchestra is like a relatively foreign object to me. Like mm. most of, I mean, I've sung with orchestras, but most of the, most of the singing I do is chamber scale and you know, there's a, there's plenty of orchestral music I love, but I haven't spent that much time in that organism really. Mm. And I really felt that as I tried to write this piece, it was really, really hard. And, um, only about half of the material in it, um, to my, by my judgment actually really works. And that should surprise nobody. <laughs> yes, well, exactly. And, I mean, presumably there's, I don't know, that I've been talking a bit to Felicity Wilcox and a few other people about, you know, how do composers get this experience that you're getting now to learn how to write for an orchestra when, when getting your break to write mm. that first piece, which is expected to be the perfect piece, is so difficult in the first place. Mm. Um, but, I mean... Maybe maybe everyone doesn't want to write for an orchestra as well. Like oh. you can you can see it from the other side. Like yes, <laughs> probably it was a great thing for you to 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 attempt and and learn. But yeah. um, maybe I can't really see like your aesthetic vision necessarily needing an orchestra, and that's a good thing because it's much more totally. live if you don't actually require an orchestra to express what you want to express musically. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's um, – that's right. There are plenty of other um, tools and other types of textures and ensembles that um, that I could use. And there's also a lot of um, – yeah, like the – Orchestras come with um, a whole lot of stuff. Like for one thing, it's kind of an idiom. Um, there's there's all this. There are all these behaviours that, that are internal to that organism that kind of require it to to run well and and do what it really does. Um, 
And there are some composers who are kind of, who really use orchestras in ways that are fascinating to me. Like I really love Clara Janotta's works um, that are at that scale. They totally <laughs> blow my mind. Um, but I'm not, I mean, I was mainly writing that piece for this TSO workshop. The whole time I just thought, I'm just going to learn a ton from this. But, but I'm not naturally attracted to trying to fit my ideas into that mm. machine. It's quite, it's quite an instrumental constraint in a way. But, and maybe this is a good segue to talk a bit mm. about electronics because in mm. a way that's the beauty of where music has come to at this current point in time that because um, electronic sound worlds are so uh, manipulatable and you know, there's so, so many sounds that you can just create um, mm. without humans. Maybe <laughs> that, that's, that is a good kind of alternative for lots of people, if, you know, and, and it's much more practical, isn't it? The thing, see, I pause there because, um, I mean, at, like as both a performer and composer who's really, really interested in the body and kind of foregrounding the body, um, both in live performance and also, you know, in my scores, um, the way I feel about electronics is that they're kind of, I mean, I was shoved into using them because of COVID. So I used them a tiny bit before then. Mm. And then as soon as as soon as COVID hit, I thought, oh, my God, if I'm going to be able to produce any music through this at all, um, you know, <laughs> like in a room on my own where I cannot invite anyone in with me, um, I'm going to have to at least see if electronics are useful. And they are uh, certainly they're useful in the ways that you say, you know, like you don't have to rely on a human and and they're very practical and they're sort of mobile and all of that stuff. Um, all of that's true. For me, they're kind of – I'm still working out how I like to use them, but mm. – um, and also it's like so such a broad thing to just say electronics. And, I know, uh, I know. And I know have what to, we mean. <laughs> but I have to preface what I said before because I was kind of being devil's advocate because I actually <laughs> don't love working with electronics personally no. because as a performer – like in the most part, I, I tend to find it quite constraining and limiting. And so what yeah. I work with a lot of composers on is, okay, how can we do this, for example, without a click track? Like I hate using click tracks. Oh, totally. They are it's just so disgusting. amusical and like <laughs> anti everything that is chamber Horrible. music, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, so then a soundscape, fine. Like I said to you, you know, like a bed of sound maybe that creates some otherworldly kind of texture over which instrumental musicians can make other music, fine. But And that's what, in a way, you did in your opera, the way you use the electronics in your opera. Yes. I mean, the, that – oh, so many things to say. I mean, <laughs> the first thing to say – the first thing I'll say is what I'm inclined to do um, as I experiment with electronic techniques is is to actually use them kind of – in the development of a piece 
and then not necessarily have them be in the in the realized version. So yeah, because they can be a crutch as well in a way, can't they? Oh my god, they can like cover up a million sins. They can yeah. also like do do the sort of heavy lifting of providing substance where, yeah. like, it's just in a way like they can be, um, especially for somebody approaching them um, like uh, newly, like me, like there are all these ways in which they can sort of be, yeah, a crutch, as you say. The way that I think they're interesting um, is, you know, to use a whole lot of electronic tools to find out, to find kind of temporal and temporal behaviours that you can then try to notate for actual people. Um, and they're ki- they can kind of like f- like um, generate sound interactions and sound profiles that you might not have come across otherwise. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's a real puzzle how, yeah, how to, how to kind of make a, um, an echo of, of an electronically derived sound in an acoustic mm. instrument. And that, that kind makes of me think of the opening of Howling Girls, the opera by Damien yeah. Ricketson. Like, because it's completely dark mm. and you, you, at the start, what I recall anyway, you will know this much better than me, um, <laughs> it, it's like <sighs> this sort of sound. And mm-hmm. and you don't know, who, like, if it's electronics, you don't, you don't know who's making that sound. Yep. And then it becomes obvious the louder it gets that it's a person yep. breathing and, yep. and making a very guttural kind of breathing sound. But, do, I mean, did that, did working with Damien on that opera also inspire you a bit to, to want to do it yourself and, and create? Because I felt like a very collaborative process between you and Damien and then Jack Simons, I guess. And Adina Jacobs too. And Adina, yeah. And um, I don't know, I just, I was blown away by that whole thing and it just felt like such a, fully fleshed out kind of artistic offering. Mm. Um, how, how did that sort of affect you, I guess, in terms of your career trajectory, even though I know it was quite recently? Oh, no, time moves fast. <laughs> yes, it does. Um, yeah, it. well, it's funny because it, um, as a singer, it was um, just kind of fully naturally in the domain of, um, of the work that I had been doing actually large I mean it's funny because so much of the kind of um, more exploratory vocal work um, that I had been doing I was doing in the States um, in part uh, quite a lot actually with this um, vocal ensemble called Ekmelis which um, really focuses on kind of um how do they put it it's like it I mean they perform a whole lot of new work that is really really vocally demanding and interesting but they and they also um perform these kind of I think he's I think Jeff their director says his um gems of the historical avant-garde for voice and um so approaching that the Harlan Girls project and that collaboration from a singing point of view was 
just kind of um, it was in the domain I reside in all the time. <laughs> so that was very natural and, um, you know, the, the discussions with Damien about the, the sound vocabulary for that work were the kind of discussions that I really enjoy and, um, and he's such an interesting um, mind, like both, both, both the kind of aesthetic universe he is working in and, but also his approach to, to making work, mm. all very interesting. Um, this is Damien but- Ricketson, our ex co well artistic director and founder of Ensemble Offspring that we're talking about. <laughs> yes, and we're talking about the Howling Girls production yes, by Sydney Chamber he's Opera. Yes, he's um, a very, very creative um, genius actually, isn't he? He's brilliant. And and so, you know, we had a, we had a lovely collaboration and with Adina too. Um, but definitely I, there was something about that work that the, the foregrounding of breath um, did – has definitely influenced um, the degree to which I foreground it mm. in my own composing at the moment. I would, I would have to like it. It's always hard to kind of um, really identify influences and and the amount of of influence. But yeah, for sure. Like as I was um, really trying to like when I was trying to write poem for dried up river my staged work um I was writing that I guess probably just after Helen Girls had premiered and it's all I mean that work is all about breath as the result of the of the dramatic situation which is an act of great effort so you know the first thing that happens when you exert yourself physically is um your breath becomes more laboured for one thing. Mm, mm. Um, and so by virtue of the text that I was working with, breath was going to be foregrounded. But something about like the amount of breath in Howling Girls, which is like, I mean, the opening breath-based um, movement is Can you just do like, it quickly, Jane? <laughs> <laughs> so it has this um, really great uh, uh, cyclical um, – Breathing that, um, I mean, breathing is cyclical, but uh, you hear it because of this ingressive singing technique where you give pitch to the in-breath. So, I mean, in that work it starts with just um, you arrange your tongue in your mouth to make the breath sound itself um, much more grainy and audible. So you do a... That's... That yeah. is not a quote of the piece, but it's a quote of the technique. And then... <laughs> kind of Darth Vader kind of... A bit of Darth. Maybe. And then... <laughs> <laughs> and then um, and then you slowly give pitch to, to both of those. Um, and when you do it on the in-breath, just pitch on the in-breath, you get like... <sighs> and, mm-hmm. um, and you get, you know, basically continuous sound, which is not normally what happens um with the way people conventionally use the voice Mm. wow yeah it's pretty amazing and just just um as a segue into what you're currently working on um at the powerhouse museum as part of your residency there um can you just tell us a little bit about that project and Mm. are you are you involved in it singing 
Um, or is it just a kind of installation work of pre-recorded sound? So actually there's a whole um, <laughs> there's a whole entanglement there. So I'm a resident with two other people at the Sydney Observatory. The work I made oh, for the Oh, yes, powerhouse. yes. I got confused because you sent me the powerhouse blurb. No, no, no. Well, the powerhouse um, then separately commissioned this oh. other work. It's all confusing. Oh, but, that is confusing. But because wasn't mm. the observatory residency advertised through the powerhouse? Yeah. I mean, yeah. institutionally, they're the same. Kind they of are thing. the same. Ma, M-A-A-S. It's the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. But um, the work, but so the work that, I mean, the, in the residency, me, Elizabeth Gadsby and Imara Savage, we're, we're developing something. So that work doesn't exist yet. But the powerhouse work that does exist um, was commissioned for their exhibition, Eucalyptusdom, which has, it was delayed by lockdown, but happily just opened. Yay. Um, yay. So we can go and see it. You can go and see it. It's free. It's on till at least May next year. So cool. That's exciting. Um, but that work is a, a really large scale sound installation um, that does uh, incorporate voice uh, and also violin just happens to be Veronique Serre, offspring of course, <laughs> insider. Of course, Veronique. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And in that work, oh, there's breath again, obsessed with breath. Mm. Um, the prompt was to create a large-scale sound work that would um, kind of unify this space full of works about trees and they have commissioned a whole lot of really amazing artworks that are in the exhibition alongside with the stuff in their collection. Um, and so my work, uh, to just describe it sort of concisely, it sort of has two layers of sonic material where one layer is um, a kind of constant and very mobile texture of breath, paper, wood. Um, and then over the top of that is a, a second layer of material that behaves quite differently and I kind of think of this material as a, a garden of sonic blossoms. And what that means is basically these little <clears throat> um, kind of caudal events of voice and violin um, come into bloom based on um, the space has movement sensors and cascades of these blossoms oh, wow. are triggered by people's movement in the space. So the sound changes depending on where they move. Yeah, it. Um, one of the fun, like I have, I I have the hope and belief that there's enough mobility and sort of um, liveness in the in both the materials themselves and also the way that these senses behave. That I think it would be very hard for someone to work out how it actually works. Which okay, that's the dream, and that's I don't cool. want to give it away. But no. it is. But yes, it's very. Um, you shouldn't be able to detect any loops, which, you know, the thing about like sort of um, a lot of museum exhibitions sound is that there are detectable loops and I really didn't want that, partly because the notion behind all of it was trying to simulate the aliveness of a forest and sort of a breeze moving through it. Um, So Cool. Yeah. It was really fun to make. I can't wait to go there, Jane. Um, Do you think they asked you, do you think they commissioned you to write the piece because they know about your Instagram obsession with taking photos of flowers and trees and stuff. Because 
I love all those photos that you take. They're so so refreshing to to not see like, oh, I'm in a concert hall and I'm rehearsing blah blah. It's like, oh, <laughs> nah. a pretty flower. That's yeah, what yeah. I like too. <laughs> Just yeah. colors and nature. Yeah, I mean, like, also, I'm I'm so not on social media. Like, I've never been on Facebook. I've never been on Twitter. I just have this weird private Instagram account. But I – and so I kind of have never had a relationship with it where it's, like, telling people about things, though I do use it for that because it's helpful. And so I just – yeah, I just fill it with plants because that's – if I'm not thinking about music – I'm basically thinking about plants. Yeah, and you're a beautiful <laughs> photographer too. Oh, Got a good eye. Doll. Yeah, I love them. But you know, I, I I have a bit of an obsession with flowers and plants and nature and color. And color. Yeah, <laughs> so. I I equally appreciate your bursts of color. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's been so lovely chatting to you. It's fun. And I can't wait to see what have, comes next with Jane, and it might even be. A little collaboration on the cards in the future, I hope. It might be. Yeah. I'd say, I'd say it might be timely. I think so. <laughs> Thanks, Claire. Okay, well, good to chat and good luck. Yeah. Thanks. See ya. Thanks for listening to The Offcast with Claire Edwards. For more information on the innovative people and musical projects discussed in this episode, take a look at the show notes below. We'd love to hear from you, so please get in touch by emailing admin at ensembleoffspring.com. And if you're interested in supporting the Offcast and the important creative work we do at Ensemble Offspring, you can donate via our website. Keep listening for more conversations with musical mavericks.